Thank you for tuning in to Trevor Talks Podcast, where we talk to real people about real topics and real stories. Today, we are going to hear from a best-selling author, a TV and radio personality, an international speaker, the founder of Hope Generation, and the senior pastor at Applegate Christian Fellowship. He has been featured on Fox, Hallmark Channel, TBN, ABC Family, and countless other outlets. His TV show is broadcasted in... 180 countries, and his national radio show airs on over 400 stations. His new book, Flirting with Darkness, is available wherever books are sold. Guys, today we've got Mr. Ben Corson on the show. Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm super just honored and privileged that you would take time out of your busy schedule to join us for this interview. Dude, I'm so excited, and I love what you're doing, Real Talks with Real People. I think that's what, you know, people connect with. They are impressed by what we've accomplished, but they connect with our weaknesses. And I believe that our, our scars become our stars. So this is going to be fun. Dude, I love that. Our scars become our stars. When did that hit you? Well, my brother t- actually shared that. And um, he gave it He gave it in a sermon that I wasn't even present for. It was somewhere in California and somebody told me about it. And it really stuck. It had a sticky nature to it because that's really true. Like, it's been said our wounds become our wisdom and our scars become our stars. And I think there's, there's a lot of power in sharing our stories. I love that so much. And like I said, your book flirting with darkness is out everywhere. Now, how does it feel to have that story launched out to the world? It's powerful because um, it's my most honest book I've ever written as far as sharing about my complex post-traumatic stress disorder and the deaths of my brother and my sister and, my dad's first wife died and I talk about like a stalker following me around pretty gnarly stuff. And my friend committing suicide who's a pastor and, uh, going through over a decade of clinical suicide ideation and depression. So that's why I'm so passionate about this because if God could heal me and he has, he can heal anybody. And that's why, like, I really believe we can put a strategy in place to overcome anxiety and to defeat depression. That's so powerful. And since everything started to back up, open back up from the pandemic, how has that impacted your life? Well, Especially during a book launch. <laughs> well, it's crazy. Um, a lot of digital events, but I'm still living on airplanes, believe it or not. I still am just finding ways to do whatever events I can that are open. Um, and, you know, nearly half Americans are saying that the coronavirus has harmed their mental health. So mm. that's nearly half of Americans. And I think we, we've talked about how, you know, more Americans have died due to the coronavirus than all the Americans in the Vietnam War combined. Like there's been more deaths the last four months than any four month period in American history. And because of this, over 200,000 Americans dying, we're at a place where we talk so much about that. And that that's obvious that we're going to talk about that. But when mm-hmm. Russia comes out with Sputnik five, you know, the, the vaccine to the coronavirus that they're hawking. Or if, say, a social activist came up with a cure for AIDS or a medical scientist found a cure to cancer, this is going to make global news. Like This is something that that they're going to shout from the rooftops. And so I think suicide is something that is such a killer that it needs to get more attention. And it it is, slowly but surely. I was just even watching last night Michael Phelps talk about his battle with depression and and how, you know, it's okay to not be okay. And I think that's very potent. But like, of course, I'm going to shout this thing from the rooftops and do all these interviews and go on the planes and just speak all the time because I'm so passionate about this cure that I believe I found 
that you don't have to just say, oh, I'm a four on the Enneagram, I'm a hipster, I'm going to live with depression, nor do you have to stigmatize or put a taboo on depression when like Calvin Coolidge, our 30th president, Marlon Brando, the greatest method actor of all time, Buzz Aldrin, the second man on the moon, these were all people who struggled with depression. So we need to remove the stigma from it. And, uh, but, but, but that doesn't mean we're supposed to live with it or accept it. I think we're not supposed to make peace with our depression. I believe we're supposed to actually put a strategy in place to defeat it. We don't have to live with this thing. And the reason I feel like I have authority to say that is because, I mean, I was in the deepest, darkest depression so long and so intensely that my counselor said, you have the most severe case of depression I've ever had to treat. Oh my gosh. That is insane. So you're a pastor. You've struggled with depression. Last week, we put out an episode with Kayla Steckline talking about her husband, Andrew, um, who we unfortunately lost to suicide in 2018. He was a pastor. Um, You consider yourself an ex-suicide survivor. Um, Where did you come with that? Like, When did that hit you? Um, well, th- I mean, that's really true to my story. It's funny. My editor came up with that phrase, uh, an ex suicide. And we almost named it confessions of an ex suicide because mm-hmm. that really described my story. I mean, sure. when I, when, when I would take a motorcycle with no license and I didn't even know how to ride the full thing. And I just ride it, this street bike, you know, super fast with no helmet, no license, not even fully knowing what I was doing. I love the rush of it. Don't get me wrong, but it was also kind of flirting with suicide. I, I remember another time I walked up a skyscraper and, uh, or like not a skyscraper. It's the tallest building that we have in the Valley, but I would go up to the very top of the parking structure and I would walk along the railing. Um, and again, just flirting with suicide. And one time I did this at another parking structure. I like stood on the edge of this parking structure and this security guard was so scared. They're like, this guy, is this guy going to like, what's he doing up on the top of this building? You know, I, I remember another time I took up a knife and just was tempted to just kill myself. And yeah. so that's what I mean by an ex suicide is I had come to the brink time and again, and God graciously helped me to step back from it. How long ago was this? So uh, the main struggle with depression was 18 to 28. Uh, So that was about, about 10 years. Then after my brother died and just going through more trauma, um, I, I suffered from it for about another year and then God helped me out again. And that's why in the book, I lay out 11 weapons to defeat the dark order depression to really give people what they need. Mm. So what's your story, Ben? Yeah. So I remember when I was a kid, I gave my first sermon in third grade, started traveling and speaking at 16, became a pastor my senior year of high school. And uh, yeah, I've just been traveling and writing and speaking and doing radio and TV for so long that uh, I'm so thankful I get to live my dream. It's so beautiful. But with that, my counselor said, you have epic triumphs and epic tragedies in your life. I remember when I was a kid, my sister said to my dad, I remember we were at, uh, she was at the dinner table with my dad and she said, you know, I'm never going to be able to marry anybody. And my dad said, why not? And she said, because, because you always tell me I need to date somebody godlier than me. And I'm the godliest person I know. (laughs) And she was saying that kind of tongue in cheek and laughing the next day she died in a car accident. And my brother came home with the news and, and he said that she had found her man. My sister, Jessica had found her man. She'd become the bride of Christ. She'd found her man. She mm. was finally with someone godlier than she was in the presence of the Lord, you know? Mm. 
my brother, uh, I remember spoke at the funeral and I prayed on it. I was in first grade and, uh, there was this song that we played called take my hand and walk that, uh, my mom played on the slideshow. And that would just always reminds me of my sister's memorial service, take my hand and walk this like subculture song from the cry in the nineties, a band called the cry. Well, what happened is at my brother's deathbed, when he was dying of cancer about a year and a half ago, I remember that song just happened to come on the radio. It just shuffled on the radio. And then shortly thereafter, he passed away and my dad was crying and I was crying at his deathbed, just like hearing that song because that song was the same one that played at my sister's memorial service. And that was his homecoming song too. And somebody said, your brother graduated. And I just picture like the Lord with one hand saying, take my hand and walk, walking Peter down the graduation aisle saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord with his other hand, taking my sister down the wedding aisle saying, you're the bride of Christ. And those stories have put in me a passion <clears throat> to declare what Paul said, if we do not believe in resurrection, we above all men are most miserable. And that's why most people throughout history across the world believe in an afterlife or some persistence of consciousness after death, regardless of their geography or religion or language, because the Bible says God put eternity in our hearts. And so <clears throat> I think that <clears throat> going through stuff like that put in me a sense of urgency to make my life matter and to make my life meaningful. Not that that was this sole thing, but that definitely contributed to that, um, to not only look forward to heaven, but to make the most of my time here on earth. Dude, that's crazy. I remember I was probably 14 or 15. The first time I gave a message and I started touring as an intern in junior year of high school with Nick Hall. And, um, so we were I love Nick, by the way, he's great. Yeah. So we, I was out uh, promoting the Together 2016 event, and I remember we were in Birmingham, Alabama, and I had my first panic attack. And after that, like one of the guys that works with him, God bless him, Jay Anderson, he uh, ended up having to drive my me and my car back to where we were staying that night because I couldn't drive. I couldn't think like I'd never had a panic attack that I could recall at the time, but going through EDMR therapy, I figured out that it had been something that I had struggled with. I just never addressed. Mm. And so following that i gave up my calling deleted all my social media outlets quit traveling quit doing everything and started working for at&t as a sales rep uh bought a house at 19 did everything that looked like it was the american dream and i was not happy i was depressed i was suicidal i just i didn't feel like my life had any kind of purpose at all but in 2018 god brought me through it um just mentors that came alongside me, Jared Wilson and uh, Lacey Sturm, just and then so many close friends just circling around me and like, Trevor, you got this. Like, you got to do this. God's got a message for you. You got to get through this. So I went through therapy, did that whole thing. And God's got me here now. And it's like, OK, how am I going to steward this? Like, God, why do you want me to share the darkest parts of my life? Why do you want me to share about the anxiety and the depression? And truth is, like, that's a part of my story, but that's not what we're supposed to share. Um, specifically, it's his grace on us through it all. So with all that being said, I've struggled with mental health, suicidal ideation, anxiety, depression. You have as well. Uh, for you as someone who's overcome that and continues to overcome it, what do you feel like most people get wrong about depression and anxiety? Uh, I think number one, that you're weak. If you struggle from depression, failing to realize that Elijah 
was suicidal. David was probably bipolar. If not bipolar, he's borderline. Moses said, if you continue to treat me this way, I want to die. Jonah wanted to die when a worm ate his plant. Job said, I wish I was a stillborn. Uh, Paul, the apostle said, we despaired even of life. Jesus said, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. So I think people think, oh, you, you must be weak if you're suicidal or depressed. But look at these characters. They went through, like when Jesus said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death as the man of sorrow. That's intense. On the other hand, I think the thing that really I want to, I have a very contrary message to this idea that again, I think people get wrong about depression is that you are forced to live with it and Mm. your, your psychological equipment. Like you just have to learn to make peace with how your brain is. But what Daniel Amon who's a psychiatrist found is that after 83,000 brain scans over a 22 year career, the number one thing he and his colleagues found is that the brain can change. So that through rote and repetition, like continually driving your thoughts in a different direction, what happens is through neuroplasticity, you actually change your cranial package and psychological constitution and cerebral gray matter. You, you, li- you can actually change the shape the plasticity of your brain. And so I think people think, oh, I'm just going to be depressed the rest of my life. And, and that just is hopeless. So I, I think on one hand saying you're weak if you're depressed, on the other hand saying you're just trapped in it for the rest of your life, I think are the two biggest misnomers and that are projected upon depression. Mm. And what do you think the root causes behind the epidemic of depression, anxiety that we're seeing? Where do you think that came from? One of them is social media. That's what sociologists tell us because like when you're refreshing your feed, they literally create it in such a way that it's the same mimicry of a gambling slot machine. It's like a Pavlovian dog response. Like you're, you're literally doing the same hand movement when you're swiping to refresh your feed as you would gambling at a slot machine because the same chemical is produced in your brain. It's called dopamine. And it's the same chemical that's produced during gambling because you don't know if you're going to win or if you're going to lose when you gamble. So it's a rush of addiction. The same issue with social media on your phone. Like you, you don't know if it's a good text or a bad text, if it's a thumbs up or a thumbs down, if it's a good comment or a bad comment. So we're so addicted. We have this digital addiction, this dopamine loop from social media that creates this, uh, this, this sense that we are wasting our life. We're comparing ourselves with everybody else we're utterly depressed because uh, we're trying to project an avatar and image of the world that isn't who we are. We're all catfishing each other, you know, like trying to live up to our own Facebook profile. And I think yeah. that that creates this cognitive dissonance and a great sense of depression. I think that's one of the causes. Dude, that's so real. And especially for people that are in college right now in high school, and I can only imagine being in middle school now, um, they're all dealing with so much insecurity, which I can relate with like growing up. But when it comes to social media, like you've got kids trying to, and even adults like purchasing likes, purchasing followers, trying to look like they're more quote unquote important, which I say that very loosely because followers, verification status, none of that means you're more important than anyone else. But from the outside, everybody wants to look like they have a ton of attention on them. And for the most part, every single interview you find with celebrities, they wouldn't wish fame on their worst enemy. Um, So what do you feel like if someone knows someone that is young in school struggling with that, how can their family walk alongside them? I think creating an empathic bond in listening 
and, Mm -hmm. and helping that person find help. I mean, for me, my sister told me you need to see a counselor. And Mm -hmm. I don't know why people think that's like not biblical. You shouldn't see a therapist. If anything, first of all, the Bible never says that. Secondly, if anything, the Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there is safety and wisdom. So like the more counselors, the better. I mean, you look at Jesus, he was a master therapist. I mean, when Peter denied Jesus three times next to a charcoal fire, what does Jesus do? He builds a charcoal fire. And as Peter tell him three times, he loves him to do psychodrama, to walk him through his topographical triggers and retrain his brain and reframe his pain. And I think that the Lord is a wonderful counselor who is often imaged in counselors and therapists here on earth. So I think one of the chief things you can do is encouraging people to, you know, get the help they need. And another thing that is very toxic within church culture is that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be on medication for your mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, well, like you said on counseling, you hit it right on the head. Like counseling is important. Uh, I I don't know that I would have been able to recover from the things that were going through my mind without having that person walk through me. And yes, I believe in miracles. I believe Jesus can walk you through it. Um, but I counseling and medication are not of Satan. Um, why are the two important combined with prayer? Well, sometimes the miracles are in the medicine. So Jesus healed a guy with spit once in this story. And Tacitus, the Roman historian, writes about the emperor Vespasian healing a guy with spit. And back then they believed that spit was medicinal, that it it had medicament properties um, imputed into it. So Jesus was putting a stamp of approval on medicine in in some ways. Like he's saying, I'm going to do a miracle, but there's medicine involved. And I think a lot of times, like even selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, uh, to get the postsynaptic neuron, not to re, re uh, pardon me, the presynaptic neuron, not to reabsorb the serotonin, but to get it to the postsynaptic neuron. So your brain chemistry is functioning properly. Again, we're in the pioneering stages of, um, pharmaceuticals. And we have to remember that if they're not perfect right now. And, and oh, some people think they're just placebos, some people uh, doubt their efficacy, but the truth of the matter is the prevailing theory is that this is what, ha- we don't know exactly how it works, but it helps the serotonin, the feel good chemical get to the, you know, postsynaptic neuron where it needs to go. So you feel better, but either way, like, I just think it's so important never to judge people who feel the need to take medication. I mean, that's just craziness. The same thing happened with chloroform and anesthesia when James Simpson introduced it. Like, no, we don't want anesthesia when we undergo surgery because pain purifies the soul. It's just like, there's whenever there's a new invention, cars, planes, trains, automobiles, the umbrella, chloroform, anesthesia, these all have a lot of pushback when they're first introduced into society. And the same thing's happening with antidepressants. I hope we get better antidepressants, but I think we got to be very, very intentional about not shaming uh, people who have medication or who need medication. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And when you were struggling with your mental health in that season, did it take a little while for you to accept the fact that you might need to go to counseling and see a therapist? Or Yeah, just- yes. No, it, I was like almost kicking and screaming because... I had gone to a counselor a few years ago and it didn't help at all. If anything, it showed me like, I don't believe in the subconscious anymore. I don't know if there's any need for this. I mean, there's no need for this in my life. The guy was a great, great guy, but not a great fit for me as a therapist. Like he referred to me as little Ben, like find the little Ben and these Freudian 
concepts to me, I'd already read up on this stuff. So it was just, I felt like a target, you know, and, and there came a moment in my life where I'm like, this is crazy. And I skateboarded away from counseling and literally skateboarded away from the counseling office. I'm like, forget this. Well, a few years later, um, my sister saw it when I was going through a very dark time, she's like, you need to see a counselor. And she introduced me to her counselor, Megan. And, uh, it was life-changing for me. I mean, through the talk here, it wasn't like a bunch of psycho babble. It was a real, you know, it really worked for me. And I think, I think people need to be patient with the process of finding the right counselor, because you might be like me. And the first one you go to, you're like, this is crazy. And then, cause sometimes you're like, man, is this just going to be Oedipus complex, Freudian daddy issues, Adlerian power grabs, Jungian dream analysis, Frankel's logotherapy. Like, where are we going to take this subconscious orc dungeon where goblins make swords idea? Yeah. And, and, and sometimes you need to, you know, be patient and realize that there might be a better therapist out there for you. Yeah. And there's so many resources to where like, if you have agoraphobia and you don't want to leave the house, or maybe you're scared of going to sit in a counselor's office, you can overcome that. But if it just becomes an issue for you and that's holding you from counseling, there are so many resources that you can access from your house, especially during the pandemic. I've seen BetterHelp, uh, which is an amazing app that I personally use when mm. I'm on the road, um, just to where I can stay in counseling and not have any kind of like, Oh, I wish I would have been in counseling because then I wouldn't have had this breakdown, just talk through things that happen when, as you know, when you're on the road, it's like, you're not around family. You're sometimes there's friends out there, but it's just really hard to be separated from people you love that long. So what are your tips for somebody that needs to find someone to talk to about their issues? Well, my counselor, I FaceTime, like I haven't gone to a counseling session in a while, but when I was in need of that, I would just FaceTime and I think we live in an age of such technological advancement that we can tap into the tap into these futuristic. Re- I remember, I remember when I was a kid, I watched this movie Xenon Girl, the 21st Century on Disney Channel. And do you remember that? Do you remember that yeah, movie? I do. Yeah, I remember when they would like. She was living in a satellite, and they would talk to. They would Facetime each other. And I'm like, in middle school, I'm like, whoa, that's gnarly. They're like talking to each other on the phone, but they can see each other. And now like the future is upon us yeah. and, and it's like, use that. That's like, not all technology is the baddie in a, yeah. you know, in a B movie of the villain in a B movie. Like it really, you really can use it for good. And one of those things is, you know, reach out to counselors, reach out to friends. Like sometimes what we need isn't more ontological navel gazing. We just need like to skateboard or, to get on a phone and just talk nonsense with our friends. That's very, very big for me and healing. Yeah. Community is huge. And if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're like, okay, I just, I don't feel like I need counseling yet. I don't feel comfortable with that. There's so many communities you can join. Anthem of hope has an amazing group on Facebook. Um, heart support has an amazing group on their website, heartsupport.com. You can go to anthemofhope.org, death to life.com. There's just so many resources available to people for free. A lot of people won't go to counseling because it's expensive and I, that's a whole other conversation conversation that I think needs to be addressed, but a lot of people don't get help for their mental health just because they can't. What is your thought about, I'm curious about the, um, you, you said that's a whole other conversation, but I want to hear your thoughts about counseling and pricing and that kind of stuff. So counseling and pricing, I think it's very, 
I, I think the work that they do is amazing and it's definitely valuable. But when it comes to mental health and people not having direct access to see a counselor because of their financial situation, I know the government has processes in place, but there's some people that quote unquote make too much money to qualify for those. And there's just a lack of, and I would even say, not even down to government. I think there's a lot the church can do. I I think if the church had counselors on staff, maybe one for each church, I don't think it would be an issue at all. Um, there's this an amazing wow. woman. Her name is Alexandra Thompson, and she's going out and she, her mission is to see a counseling center in every single church in America, no matter how big or how small oh. or access to it, which is amazing. But um, for those people in the in-between jobs that have to get out of counseling and they're suicidal, what is there for them? And I don't think counseling should be free. Um, like I know in other countries, they qualify that as, um, a health condition, which it a hundred percent is, but Mm -hmm. for some reason, and I don't know about other countries, but specifically in America, there is a huge need for counseling, but there's a huge gap between people that need it and can afford it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, like I said, like it's a whole other conversation. Yeah. There's so many. So, so, what, so some yeah. of these apps that you were discussing, do you feel like those help bridge the gap? Yeah. So I think better help right now is you get the full month for $185 and the average price for counseling is anywhere, depending on their degree, 70 to $130 per session. Mm-hmm. So if you go to better help, like I said, I think it's like $185. If you do four sessions a month, you're going to average around 35 to $40, depending wow. on where you live. Um, so it's such an amazing resource. And like I said, I started using it myself, um, which like you said, you do yours on Facebook time you found an amazing counselor but yeah. even when i was going in to find my counselor i didn't find mine right off the bat i wasn't charged for the intro um to that which we've got the link in our podcast description below if anybody wants to check that out Good. i highly recommend it because i love it um and it it literally was a huge huge bridge for me and even finding a faith-based counselor they have resources for that i strongly believe that having a christian sit there and walk through that with you and lead you even lead you in prayer like (laughs) i wasn't expecting that from a secular company but i was just very impressed and there's more apps than better help out there that's just what i've personally used and the only one i can speak on um there's also an app called calm that walks you through guided meditation and such Oh, yeah. uh, Yeah. So a lot of people are like yoga and meditation is Hindu or something like that. But if you're praying to Jesus and just I say use breathing techniques like you can reset your brain with breathing techniques. I've seen it happen in my Mm -hmm. personal life whenever I'm about to get on an interview or walk on stage and I'm like having really bad anxiety, converting that into energy that makes me excited can be done through breathing techniques. Sometimes it's harder than Mm -hmm. others, but God's showed me that that works for me. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's been an amazing few years of figuring out my body and figuring out how it operates and different ways to reset it. Yeah, that's good. That's so good. I love it, dude. Yeah. Well, everything that you're doing is amazing. Where can people figure out more about you and flirting with darkness? Yeah. So flirting with darkness is available anywhere books are sold. Uh, the best place to go is amazon.com. Just type in flirting with darkness and it's the third book down. So, uh, and, and this is a book, even if you don't struggle with depression to share with your friend, like I really, I lay down 11 practical things you can do 
to fight your way out of this thing. And I really believe in this message. So uh, also you can just find all, all my stuff at my website, bencorson.com or just type in hope generation to your social media platforms. I love that so much. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Mr. Ben Corson. You can check out his book, Flirting with Darkness, on Amazon now. And as he said, get more information at bencorson.com. We'll talk to you guys next week. Jesus wants our fears to launch us toward faith. Then he grins and says, Do you trust me? Because together, we can do this. With Mornings with Jesus, you can start your day in a positive way. Find hope through inspirational stories and scripture. Go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Mornings with Jesus. You can also download the Abide app for biblical meditations at abide.com.